Streaming live from Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island. I'm excited to host the first Nuit Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I'm your host and artistic director, Julie Negum, and this is my third episode, Memory and Belonging. I'm excited to share stories from artists Carolyn Monet, Julian Christian Lutz, professionally known as Director X, Amarita Heppi, Young Yemi, and Raw. Let's begin on the other side of the planet with performance artist Amrita to give us some insight into her work for Nui Live and a nod towards her practice in our current climate of mass amounts of people wanting to remove historical statues that continue to tell colonial, racist, and gendered stories of place. So at the moment in so-called Australia, there is a kind of celebration around uh, Cook's arrival and the kind of celebrating his, I guess, his presence in Australia and his legacy. So at this time, they're rebuilding the Endeavour, which is one of the first ships that came to Australia. And they're going to do this voyage around Australia that for some reason it's not the same voyage that Cook actually did. And they're also building a new monument of Cook. And this has been a really contentious time as well because it's like, why why are we making another monument? And is this not outdated? There's been a lot of... But there's also been a lot of, uh, I, I guess, Indigenous mob over here who have been trying to reimagine what it could be like. And there's obviously stark opposition. I think broader to that monumental kind of looks at the dialectical nature of monuments and our relation to them and the fact that, you know, they're these central pillars, but they're also kind of can seep into the periphery, like a lot of insidious things. So similar to a horizon line, they're, you know, steadfast, they're informative space, and they're these kind of expansive and looming, continuous, you know, reminders. And they're kind of always being worn down and rinsed out, and I feel like we're sometimes, hopefully, gaining some kind of retrospective. I made Monumental at the start of the year, in January. Originally, it was meant to be shown in April, and then in Australia at Gertrude Contemporary, and then travel over to you. But there was a pandemic, it's been interrupted, which actually was a real blessing because during this time, there was obviously a surge in destroying monuments. In Monumental, we see we see like we see seven performers serenade and then begin to destroy a monument. It looks like a colonial figure. It's made from expanded foam. Um, I was really interested in how to choreograph destruction and whether that could be something that could be quite precise. I was also interested in how to, I guess, do it with a certain technicality and to kind of reel back from the pathos while still having it. There's also to this continuous um, continuous setting sun or rising sun that happens throughout the video. And it kind of plays with this idea of repetition and where is the horizon in this and is it setting or is it rising again? And it's kind of also, in, it's spliced through with a few pieces of archival footage from both of my countries and the monuments that are used such as things like the Wakahuya and different, I guess, different symbol or symbolic uh, monuments to me. 
and their kind of making and then their destruction as well. This conversation is so pertinent right now as we see the dismantling of monuments at a global level within our news feed and social media. This is such a critical moment in our collective history as each shift that happens, it allows for mass amounts of the public to speak out of the injustices we are facing from different communities. The connection to race, gender, and politics are prevalent in Ra's performance work as she expands on her created characters in her artwork, Supernova. So my practice consists of, um, I have three primary characters that perform and kind of uh, explore issues of like race and nationalism and gender and just identity politics, um, space, technology. So I have my white supremacist nationalist character, Oreo, whose concerns are involved like performing and, and maintaining whiteness and and white supremacy and racial hierarchies and then i have my neo-orientalist character fatima who um critiques the the western and like orientalist gaze but also comments on um iranian kind of nationalist uh, self-romanticizing tendencies so in supernova for example the character performs the song uh in pahlavi and Pahlavi is an archaic language that a lot of Iranian nationalists want to return to because they say that contemporary Farsi has been tainted by Arab and French loanwords. But this language, it's gibberish and um, it's incomprehensible to everyone except for the eight to ten scholars and linguists who specialize in this language. And I was able to work with one of them, Professor McGill. Toledo from the University of Toronto. And then I have my character, uh, who I'd say is the closest I have to a self-portrait. It's Coco, who's like my post-human, like non-binary, alien, liminal character. And through that character, I hope to like foster identification with diasporic um, subjects like myself and to think about new geographical spaces, new forms of communication, that a kind of refusal to p- participate in colonial language. And, and the character goes towards like movement as a form of, of language. And um, that movement is a combination of Iranian dancing and a style of dance that emerged in, in Los Angeles in the 1970s called whacking. So it combines that with just gestures from like some performance performance artwork. Similarly, Amarita's practice and her work Monumental deals with these gestures that Ra is discussing. But Amarita uses movement through dance, voice, and the destruction of the statue to communicate these imbalances. Hmm, it's interesting. I think that this dismantling, like there's something about dismantling things that has a certain catharsis. But there's also an argument to be made that by keeping something, we're allowed to like infuse it, we're allowed to infuse it symbolic with other meanings. And, you know, I think that there's a few ins in this. And what I was thinking about was, I guess, how these bodies can dismantle another body, but then like what's happening in return in relation to the object and the subject when it's being... I guess, beaten down with things that hold a lot of iconography and Australian subjectivity, such as cricket bats and the like. But yeah, I think it's interesting too. It started with baseball bats and then I was like, no, no, no. 
We need cricket bats. <laughs> yeah, we're connected by our, our beautiful Commonwealth. Um, but I mean, I think that is an Australian. There's these like certain moments that definitely have an Australian context. But I mean, and that's that allows you into this personal. And it also the dancers are in the performance live. The dancers sing the whole time. This kind of baroque style that then gets more and more out of sync as things begin to ramp up. And I think in all of these placements, it's, it's never unimaginable that this could be not happening in other in other contexts, in other, you know, Commonwealth contexts as well. So it places itself uh, with certain symbols, I guess, here, but it's not far for the imagination to reach that it could also be happening in yeah, Toronto, Canada. Mm. And there's something nice. I mean, I was thinking about this especially after you know what's been happening in America and what are the monuments that are now being you know kind of destroyed and there's you know these colonial monuments but then there's also to these capital monuments that are, are kind of like being ripped down and destroyed and actually I think that they've in some ways you know your Walgreens your chemist warehouse have kind of maybe become the new monumental figures and the more like a steadfast yet periphery things that are being destroyed in this kind of cathartic manner. The idea of death and destruction are heavy topics, but so strongly pervasive in our current climate. We see the entire world shift under this virus to remind us how small we are as humans. And this was the intention of Julian's work he created for Nuit Blanche. Death of the Sun is really about mortality, physical death, and uh, it is meant to the idea. The sun is ours. There's no one. No one gets to claim the sun, right? Lots of people claim land. They claim oceans. They claim cities. They claim cultures. There's a lot of claiming when it comes to people, and and part of claiming is 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 the ex, is exclusion. If this is mine, then it's not yours. If this is my country, you know what I mean? All that stuff. But that's all bullshit. The sun is one of those things that we all have. It's not like other planets. Not even like the moon. We don't have that. There's a relationship we have with the sun that's very, I mean, it's our sun, right? But it's all of ours. So there, there, was, there was that element in the, in the making of that piece for everyone to go look at the sun and say that's ours. And then also, we all reach a point in our life where you understand your parents are going to die. Not just you know they're going to die. You've always known that, yeah, you know, some one day your parents are going to die. But it is part of adulthood when you look at your parents and say, oh, no, no, no. They're not always going to be here. In, in, a, in a real understanding. So there's also that element of it as well. Because the sun is so... We look at it the way we look at Right now, we look at it the way we look at our parents. It's just this thing that's always going to be there, always going to provide. And even our son will die. Right? So it, it was those elements all working. And we have uh, Life of the Earth, which is very much about us and what's going on here. To get a perspective on us, how long we've been here, what we've been up to, and then to really address what we have going on with climate change and uh, how real that is. We're, it might be too late. In my mind, I only have one vision of thousands of people standing around Julian's massive floating sphere, taking over the space with red-orange movements of gases throughout. 
This disorientation reminds me of the feeling when I first watched Transatlantic, the video and installation work of Caroline's. Uh, it's a large-scale video installation that is about 16 minutes length. It's actually footage that I shot back in 2012, so it took me a good six years to uh, finish the project. But it's uh, basically a trip between Europe, the coast of Amsterdam, uh, all the way to uh, Montreal. And the idea was, that because I'm part French and part Anishinaabe, the idea was to, that the Atlantic Ocean would be a middle ground for both sides of my ancestors to meet. Um, we always say that identity is intrinsic to territory, but I was asking myself, what happens when you come from two territories, and I feel attached to both territories of Brittany, France, and Outaouais, Quebec? So what started as a very identity quest piece over the years became more of an exploration of economic uh, struggle, the old colonial route, exchanges between nations, and uh, most importantly, communication or rather lack of communication between nations. Um, so the video is more of an experience-based video where the viewer is invited to feel all the emotions that I felt while on ship. I was uh, the only woman on ship when I took the trip. It took me 21 days on a Polish boat with a Polish crew. So my my emotions went from, you know, boredom to serenity, to fear, to just peaceful moments. And the entire video moves from these emotions to the next. Uh, it's helped with the sound of uh, beautiful sound artist Simon Kibal, who's a longtime collaborator of mine. And we really looked at uh, sound wave as communication devices. So Morse code, uh, radio wave, anything that would uh, pertain to any communication or wave that represents or can symbolize that communication between nations or, or devices uh, to communicate. It's such a visually stunning work. You have a visceral experience to feeling both motion sickness and the dualism that's demonstrated. The first time I witnessed it, it was in Banff and I couldn't pull myself away. I'm super motion sickness and I just kept pushing myself over the feeling to experience it. I just love the idea of the creation of this work into an immersive VR for Nui. I guess the video transatlantic has this mirroring effect because uh, it's really talking about uh, dual identities, nations mirroring each other, looking at each other, communicating with each other. I wanted the piece to be very um, landscape-wise, have this feeling when you enter the installation, you feel immersed into the piece. So translating it into VR experience kind of makes sense to me. Because the idea was really to feel how how would you feel when you when you would be in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by sea, surrounded by blue colors, surrounded by waves. Transforming the piece in the in the VR environment makes it even more the experience that I wanted to create with the piece. So I was really glad that we were able to uh, to push it that way. Because also the idea behind the installation was that the viewer would be at the center of the installation. Uh, rather than being passive towards the piece. The disorientation uh, feeling comes from the mirroring effects, I think. I used, uh, I was inspired by 
the roster uh, uh, psychology test where everyone would see blocks of color, blocks of shape. Everyone can see whatever they want within the visuals. Because I wanted to express different types of emotions from calmness to fear, from nausea, that you, every, every emotion or, or feeling that you often experience on ships when you're, you're on ships for a long time, so the disorientation comes from that. Sometimes you don't really know what you're looking at in the video, but that's part of also the experience of, you know, looking at the ocean for for days on, 21 days, always kind of the same, but never exactly the same uh, because you're moving forward, but it doesn't seem like you're moving forward because you're in the middle of the ocean. So whether you look to your right or to your left, it's always kind of the same thing. Colors start changing a little bit. Shapes of the water start changing a little bit, but it's really, that's why the video is a 16-minute is a piece, is to allow this kind of transition from one state to the next. And I guess the VR uh, just enhances that experience of disorientation and being, you know, in the middle of nowhere and, and feeling so small compared to the ocean and the world around you. I think my sense of space has always inspired the work that I do. I've always been intrigued to like um, borders or frontiers. I'm interested in those gray zones where whether it's not one thing or the other, it's, it, it can be blurred. Those frontiers can be blurred. I don't like uh, categories or boxes. So for me, being a woman, indigenous, but also French, where does your... Where does the labeling happen or where do you uh, do you put yourself or situate yourself within all these identities being francophone as well? So that, I mean, Transatlantic speaks about that. It speaks about looking at the, the Atlantic Ocean as a centerpiece for nations to communicate, right? Or to, um, it's the old mythological route. It's also a place for me to understand where my place is within America and Europe. It has a, you know, deep symbolism into, into the history of Canada as well and the history of France or, or the wealth of France as well because uh, France became really rich on the back of, of indigenous people. And how do I reconcile with that within my own family history and my, my own identity, knowing that my father is from France and my mother is Anishinaabe, right? It's kind of... I think at the beginning, the piece was about reconciling those two identities together and making sure that it's, that it's like not a problem to be part of a colonial history, but also uh, on both sides of the colonial history. Telling stories can be a difficult task, making sure we have the right voices at the table, and communicating stories of trauma and violence can be challenging for many artists. Ra reflects on the long process of transformation for the creation of her work, Blue Girl. Blue Girl uh, was a really difficult project to realize because it was first supposed to be a documentary. And I had gotten, so I've been working with a researcher, my cousin, who's research her PhD is uh, is about female self-emulation and she has personal experiences with that because her sister 
um, self-emulated and, and passed away at a protest. We had a we were part of a political family when I was growing up, and and as a former protester, sister set herself ablaze and, and passed away. So her research has been dedicated to this, and she wanted to, and she was there, she, and she said that she didn't find an, a lot of visual uh, documentation or representation of these women. So we we decided to to um, try and pursue a grant, and she went to Central Asia. Uh, to Persian-speaking countries there and connected with women from Hope Centers and, and the hospitals and asked if we could film a documentary there. And they they, refu- they declined. They said that the Hope Center is a safe space and they really didn't want to be defined by their exp- by this experience because many of these women had done it, you know, two decades ago. And then their participation in the Hope Center is about educating young girls and to, to not to not do this. So she came back and and I had a grant from the Canada Council. So we, I was at that point, we had talked a lot and I was invested and I wanted to talk about the project in a different way, but was reluctant to like aestheticize it or stylize this very traumatic and real experience. Um, so after a lot of reflection and thinking about, you know, how, how to service these women or to tell a story in kind of an ethical way, it was hard. And so I took their the testimonials that Sarah gathered for the research with their permission and, and I turned it into a kind of a, like an abstract poem. And then I worked with an Iranian composer, Parisa Sabet, based in Toronto, and she created a classical composition and score for two sopranas and a cellist. And my soprano and then I sourced Iranian women, sopranas and a cellist as well, and they they performed the score. And then I wanted to, I mean, my work has been going into the kind of aesthetics and and language of ethnic futurisms. And I I think I I hadn't, I wanted to place these women in the future to carve a space for maybe like this existence that perhaps has felt like canceled or, or foreclosed. So I thought as a strategy, it would be really interesting to, and it would like nuance the conversation in a way. So I placed the women in this futuristic kind of sci-fi fantasy world. This work really translates so well into VR. The immersive feeling is so prevalent, you can feel and hear the stories reverberate through your body. The installation itself is the three-channel tableau, and you have the the main figure singing the testimonials, and then you have the cellist to the right of the composition, and then you have the narrative. So the song goes, uh, which is very unique to Paris's style. She likes to combine narrative and like spoken word with like classical singing. So there's this really interesting dialogue happening between the composition, or sorry, between the cellist and the singer and the the ghosts of the women who are fleeing from the burning house. And I didn't want to like aestheticize this the performance of self-emolition. I thought it would be like a poor taste to set anyone on fire. So instead I, I set the house as like a symbol of the patriarchy as, as a kind of like a body. The house became a symbol of like that body. So I, I set the house on fire instead of instead of the women and, and I had the, the ghosts fleeing. So there are three women, the three narratives, one one ghost for each narrative. You have the young woman 
because self-immolation does happen amongst you know, very, very young girls who are often married off, um, you know, at 11 years old um, and are abused and are denied um, education. And, you know, so many of these girls just want to be in school and they want to work and, and they're not allowed to have these experiences. And a lot of these uh, self-immolations happen as a result of some sort of domestic violence. So it really is like an act of protest and rage. And I wanted to emphasize that rage. So the woman like run out of the house. The second woman is a bit more of a, an older figure. She runs out of the house screaming and she she uh, utilates and, and she's grieving and she's like pounding her chest. And then third woman, who's actually, I performed that one, comes out of the house and kind of shares in this duet the, with the lead singer. And then they turn into fireflies. And I really like the idea of fireflies because um, of the way that they kind of self-emulate. They have these little lights that flicker, but when they're dying, they flicker. And also um, when there are these femme fatale fireflies that will flicker their lights, like devour the men. And I thought that was a really interesting like feminist image. And the, the landscape as well was like constructed by these flowers that are supposed to resemble like a vulva. It's very Georgia O'Keeffe. <laughs> I, I channeled my inner Georgia O'Keeffe. And, and um, yeah, they're like these little tulips that look like, like vaginas and, and, and vulvas and things like that. So I really wanted it to have this like feminist, sci-fi, futuristic aesthetic. And yeah, that's that was the process of, of making Blue Girl. And yeah, I'm excited to share it. Blue Girl is beautiful and tragic, like the parallel of thinking of the fireflies. I love the futuristic feeling of it. It's so interesting to hear you talk about your process of actually communicating how you went from one stage to the next. I like it so much better in this futuristic form, and I think it does it justice to what you're trying to communicate in a way that's so poetic. Similarly, we see the work of Yemi, whose strong graphic style is seen throughout his practice. I couldn't wait to see his image translated into AR. I'm a Toronto-based visual artist. I focus on themes of Pan-Africanism and uh, Afrofuturism. And I guess basically like my background is in commercial photography. So my practice now consists of, it revolves sort of around photographic images, but I, I also work a lot with collage and digital manipulations. Um, and I've started to get into some sculptural stuff as well. But basically I, I'm just trying to look at the uh, variances in, in the experience of blackness um, it, it, that warrants it's seen a lot as just like this monolithic identity. But then, you know, as people in the diaspora understand, it's also just completely diverse in terms of cultures, religions, and ethnicities and, and everything that everything like that. So I guess my work really just tries to sort of inspect both of those uh, both of those perspectives and, and just kind of reflect on that. The specific piece for Nui Blanche is is called When the Family's Faith Hold Them Up. And that that piece specifically uh, explores the interconnectedness within Black families and within Black communities. There's just like a, I just feel like there's a, a shared sense of sort of accountability and sort of like a, a responsibility to help each other out. I just feel like that's sort of a thing within 
black communities. It's just like when we kind of have to look out for each other because we know that we're not we're not always being looked out for in the more broader social sense. Kind of have to look out for each other, and that's kind of where the uh, the inspiration for that piece came from. When we think about where we come from and our families that hold us up, we need to also reflect on the extreme need for the small percentage of the population that controls the wealth and well-being of the world. And as we hear from Julian... To look at a river and say, ah, we don't need that river, before you even get the people, just to nature. Like, it's, it's insanity. We can't fathom it. But at the, the breaking point, this is what's going on. There's that element happening, and we need to just acknowledge what... Like, your house is burning. No point in, in discussing the home you'll build on the ashes or if you'll have to go and buy some, you know what I'm saying? Future plans, it makes no sense to talk about what the future holds while the house is actually burning. You gotta put the fire on. I couldn't agree with you more. I think one way that we can do this is through some of your upcoming work on meditation. I think it's so interesting that these extreme times we are living with people having to self-reflect on their actions and lifestyle. Julian shed some light on this upcoming artwork and ideas around meditation. Yeah, Operation Prefrontal Cortex. Yeah, we're 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 doing a lot, man. We're 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 working hard to get into um, just have our police begin to meditate and really working hard to get into those conversations. You know, you have to stay at. It's hard. You have this science, but people just again that same mental block. They just don't want to accept that meditation can fix these this trauma can fix this damage no matter piles of evidence that the meditation actually is good for the brain changes the brain and the same parts of the brain that are damaged by stress damaged by trauma damaged by abuse damaged by neglect are the exact parts the same parts of the brain that meditation grows and meditation and physical exercise really um change the effects of trauma that's really the magic combo is physical activity and meditation. Doing both those things, yes, it changes It changes the damage, it repairs the damage done by these things. We constantly have to grapple with this feeling of belonging. And this can be complex for so many people. Some of us move or are forced to leave our homes, and some of us have been here for millennia. Also, each territory is different, how it might welcome or not welcome you into that space. We hear a little bit from Ra about her relationship to Quebec. I think this belonging to place is something that I've always struggled with, having been raised in the diaspora. And I grew up in Quebec, um, in Gatineau. And it was a very hostile environment in the 90s, very white and um, very violent-like. And it continues to be, I, I find that, uh, the Francophone community is not the most welcoming and, and can be very xenophobic and very blatant about their xenophobia. Like, you know, just last year, they, they banned the veil from the public sector. And it's like, how are we having this conversation uh, in 2019? How is this acceptable? You know, there's I've just had there really felt like you really didn't feel like you belonged. And then amongst the Iranian community, I also don't feel a sense of belonging. They very vocal, um, you know, about telling me that I don't belong and and. Um, you know, making fun of my language skills in in an endearing way. Sometimes they're just like, oh, it's so cute, but it feels patronizing. And I don't know. I just I'm not able to like 
uh, read or write the language. I'm only able to speak it. So I, I, there's limitation with, with, um, with how well I can like articulate myself. I've never really felt a sense of belonging. And I think I've always been longing for a community and like a feeling of home and a feeling of family. And um, yeah, it was really difficult as a young kid. But then when I developed Coco, I, I, I created a, a manifesto that helps to conceptualize the character. And I realized um, the power of like disidentifying and kind of refusing to um, as, like self-categorize or belong to like a nation, a national identity to, to refuse to participate in that. And I think that really shifted things, that shift in perspective. Uh, I felt in some way, I don't want to say like emancipated, but a little bit. Yeah, it was very empowering to be like, you know what, like, I'm just going to create my own space and I'm going to create my own language and I'm going to create my own identity, which involves not identifying with anything. And to self-alienate in a way that helps, it's, it's very healing and it's like the self-guided um, like transfiguration. Like you really do feel, I don't know, some... I don't want to say power because I don't like that word, but uh, yeah, like uh, a bit freed, I guess. So the the five prompts, um, one of them is disidentification. One of them is um, a concept I coined called liminal melancholy that uh, just looks at the external factors that have like plagued these feelings of displacement and and angst. Uh, Anyway, there, there are three other prompts, but those two are the ones that stand out to me the most because it really has has been like a, a heavy weight of like melancholy for many, many years trying to figure out where I fit. This need for longing and belonging is such a complex relationship. How we live and move through the world is so important. It's how we reflect on ourselves. When I first saw Yemi's work, I wanted to see it all over the city for Nuit Blanche. And to my surprise, it was already in progress. He was already mapping out the city with his strong style over walls and buildings throughout the entire cityscape. That's that's sort of a tough question. I do I do feel like I belong in Toronto. I feel I'm constantly frustrated by Toronto. I mean, like Toronto can be a, a very frustrating and somewhat unforgiving place um, a lot of the time, and. I've definitely had my my own fair share of you know personal struggles trying to get a foothold in the city, um, especially creatively. But um, at the same time, I, like kind of to what I was speaking to, there's just amazing people here. There's so many amazing people here, and I love the community that I'm a part of. And I don't know, I'm not really sure where else I would find that, you know. Um, so in from that perspective, I do I do love Toronto. I love Toronto for the people, but I just I I feel like there's there's a really conservative undertone to the infrastructure in Toronto. Just like the perceived gatekeepers and the institutions just have this sort of underlying conservatism to them um, that I just find uh, I just find frustrating uh, a lot of the time. So it's just uh, it's a constant sort of back and forth between those two. So this summer I started um, 
putting up some of my pieces as wheat paste. So I've done, you know, some in like graffiti alley uh, as part of a, as part of um, an event called Paint the City Black, which um, brought together a bunch of graffiti artists to um, to create work around around the Black Lives Matter movement and around social justice in in the Queen Street alleys. So I did some there. I've done some in Kensington Market. Um, I've done some on out on Dundas West and. The response has been great. Like I've, I've received like a lot of uh, a lot of good feedback. I think a lot of people just like to see that representation of, of Black people. And again, like in the especially in the street art scene in Toronto, there's not there's not an abundance of imagery that speaks directly to the to the Black community. Like there, we definitely have uh, a few you know amazing graffiti artists that are part of the Black community. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like thinking of like an Elixir or an Adrian Hales, people like that. But in the overall landscape of, of street art in Toronto, it's, there's just not not a not a lot of representation of Black people. So I think that that imagery is really um, resonating. Don't stop. In Yemi's AR work for Nui, you can slap his image on any wall. It could be in your home, on a building you think it needs to be. You determine the location you want to see this beautiful image of strong black women's braids connecting us to the strength of our families. The grounding for Amarita's practice is her connection to who she is, and she taps into that as she continues to create new performance work. She works from her knowledge of the past, present, and future. I'm currently located on the lands of Kulin Nation, Wurundjeri people, now known to some as Melbourne. And that's where I live and practice and make work. Originally, I am a Banjalung woman from Northern New South Wales and a Ngapu woman from Northern Aotearoa. Uh, my practice is mostly centered around the archives of memory and the body. I'm an artist that works primarily in choreography and dance. So when I say choreography, I'm referring to the organization of space and time. I, uh, my original ambition as a dancer was to be a backup dancer in video clips, but I think, you know, ancestors had other plans. I started <laughs> doing papahaka and also juku robbery from a young age and then uh, started, I guess, more Western dance training. And that was really like my in into, I guess, making art. And I still continue to work as a dancer for some really amazing um, dance companies and still make work that sits within theater spaces, uh, public space and the gallery, but sometimes it's dance, sometimes it's objects, but it always, always comes back to working with the body. Like, for example, you know, <clears throat> I am Bonjolang, Arakwal, and then also two Māori, Ngāpui, and these are such, it's funny, people are like, what do you feel more of, or what are you more connected to? And I'm like, it's like, they, it's so different. I can't, you know, what, what's more? I'm like, my left toe is more. How do I tell you that? Like, yeah, they're so very unique that, I mean, there's maybe some, you know, through colonization, there's some kind of tie, but I wouldn't say that that was the only tie, but I would say that there is, yeah, there's so many different memories and different experiences through both of these islands that are yet yeah, distinctly, distinctly different. And sometimes it's, you know, Almost when I'm thinking about things in the archive, sometimes it still surprises me trying to make the clarification between 
the two of them. You know, there's the things that are more obliquely from one place or the other, but then there's things that still, I guess, there's things that still surprise me where they're coming from, whether they're be uh, conscious or unconscious, especially in my dance practice. Sometimes the stars of your ancestors have other plans for you. It might take you on another life path. As we have witnessed on this episode, each artist continues to create incredible work for their future. They look to the past to merge those relationships to place that bring them into the present. Hmm. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say Chimigwich, Marcy, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place. 